Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 302 Mental Illness and the Dark Night. We're joined again by Willoughby Britton and Daniel Ingram for our Geeks of the Roundtable discussion, exploring the dark night, mental illness, and the recent Time Magazine story on Aaron Alexis and the Dark Side of Meditation. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. My very skewed experience at the Dharma Overground is that once people get a good context and they get put in touch with people to talk about this stuff with, and once they get some good tools and techniques and frameworks and can normalize it and really let it out, because a lot of people really seem to gain great benefit from telling their story. The psychotherapeutic people obviously know this and have for a long time, but um, that it really does seem to cut the cycle down, not for everybody. Um, although then you do have to, the problem of recurrence. So it's, so, you know, the pattern you then start to see is people get from, you know, using traditional term language, you know, if they cross the A and P, they hit the dark night, they reach out, they're freaking out. They finally find, you know, whatever Dharma overground, et cetera, you know, Kenneth Folk Dharma, one of these places, you know, Hamilton project, et cetera. And, um, one of the sister communities and, and they, um, then they start to put it together and they get to equanimity and then, they're okay for a while. And then, you know, so the standard pattern is they, they get to equanimity and then they may fall back and go through the whole thing again. Cause if you don't get stream entry relatively quickly after equanimity, you tend to sort of go the other way. It's not a place. A lot of people stay for a long period of time. Most people. The bardo. And so, so <laughs> yeah. yeah, so the standard, so the standard pattern is, you know, um, hit dark night, reach out, freak out, cross up to equanimity, fall back. But at least now, you know, you can get better, which is huge. Like that. It's not perpetual. You're not going to stay like that forever. Cause one of the sort of weird cognitive messages that the fear tells you is you're always going to be that way, which can be very debilitating. Um, and so once they know that they can figure out how to get to equanimity, at least they have that. And that makes it a lot easier to bear the next time, even if they go through it again, they may fall back, you know, cross the A&P again, hit the dark night. But a lot of them then, then have a sense of, okay, now I sort of know what I'm doing and that helps. And then even if they get stream entry, so let's say they get stream entry um, and then they, you know, have got stream entry and they're in the review phase and they're doing fine. At some point, new territory is going to show up and they may be totally surprised at how much going into that territory yet again can be surprising or debilitating. And actually sort of, you know, Bill Hamilton used to talk about this all the time. You don't know at which of the sort of dark nights along the way you're going to have sort of the most stuff. And this is his stuff model of dark nights. And, you know, assuming that you have all these strata of mind, the various paths, if you want to use path terminology or whatever. And so that at various levels, you may suddenly run into something that's less difficult or more difficult, and some can be easy and some can be quick. But I've had people who were very, um, you know, sort of moderately enlightened to use traditional language meditators who had real skills and real good maps and very smart, diligent people, you know, somewhere in the middle, you know, they might be what I'd call second path or whatever. And all of a sudden they hit their new dark night and suddenly they call me up and they're totally suicidal, like, you know, really absolutely just astounded how much they're absolutely knocked down. Um, and then usually what's interesting is at that point, the, the cycles tend to be really quick. So in comparison to the pre-stream entry cycles, which tend to have this very, very long time course, the post-stream entry cycles, once you're in the stream of the thing, 
tend to loop through pretty fast. So most of them a few days later will call me up and go, oh, I'm good. No, I'm in equanimity now. I'm all right. You know, thanks for listening, but I'm, I'm cool now, you know, and then they, you know, get their insights or whatever. But, um, but you know, so uh, the, the technology really, I think at multiple levels has helped to lessen the cycles or at least make them more bearable or make them faster um, or anyway, or at least not quite so bad. So that's my. Yeah. It's like never trust the state. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you ever found anyone attached to their, to their dark night experience? I was for a long time. I didn't even realize that oh, I yeah? was. Oh, yeah. That's um, and I know plenty of, of people who have yeah. sort of the great spiritual basket case. You know, I am the great spiritual yeah. basket case. I've been there. I've done that. I'm, uh, you know, it's very sort of compelling sometimes. And I know a lot of people who do that um, become very attached to it, become very into it. Um, it can be sort of their badge of whatever, um, you know, their war medal, their something. Anyway, and, you know, it's not like there isn't something, you know, really challenging about it, kind of like being in a war or whatever. It's okay. You know, it's hard. But, you know, still, yeah, a lot of people can become um, very, very into it. Um, I've had a number of friends who got pretty into it for a while mm -hmm. until they figured out how to get out of it, how being out of it, not being into it was so much better. But that's, there's a learning curve, you know, there. So, yeah, it's common. People identify with anything. You know, people yeah. will identify with I'm a depressed person. I'm a whatever, you know, and then they, that becomes part of their thing. You know, because we're we're identifying beings. It's what we um, do. So, I'm wondering. Um, for me, when I um, when I class when I got into the classical dark night territory from my meditation practice, and I've talked to a little about it a little bit with the Buddhist geeks community. Um, there was Willoughby's alluded to like one of the signs being a lot of terror and fear, and um, that it was it was really intense for me and i had that um period of time where i actually didn't know where to seek out the support and i didn't have the context necessarily at that particular point what i found and i'll tie this into the article a little bit which is a little bit touchy is that um the loving kindness and the compassionate practice was actually uh really key for me at that point um to like switch it up and I'm wondering, you know, if you have any other techniques um, or suggestions for people that tend, like maybe they're watching the show and they think, oh, my gosh, like, what can I do right now? Besides, you know, of course, reach out to Willoughby's organization. Um, so if there's any kind of suggestions with that. And then the, I also <laughs> want to just drop in there because I, this is a phrase that I hear a lot in the mindfulness community is does a sniper have compassion? And that's touchy with this article is um, so is there something about a raising awareness towards the loving kindness practices um, that you all would think might be important here? What's your thoughts on that? Um, so I definitely take probably more uh, emphasis on compassion. I mean, I think that that when I'm working with people who are really struggling, I find that um, there's sort of this tertiary layer of unnecessary struggling around whatever sort of initial, the first arrow kind of symptoms. And then there's a the second arrow of, um, I, I met my meditation messed me up. I'm, I'm different than everyone else. Like I have, you know, like I just this whole layer of like shame and isolation and, and that kind of thing. So I find that, um, and many people like actually aren't able to meditate anymore. I mean, putting actually mm -hmm. narrowing their focus onto the breath is like, it, it, they actually physically can't even do that. So then they feel just like complete failure. So I feel like the, um, the Brahma Vihara practices are just incredibly helpful for a lot of that kind of healing. And I, I don't think I, 
you know, I keep Dan's, you know, the stages of insight, the progress of insight in mind, but it's, I'm not sure it's as predictable as, um, as the text say it is. I mean, there's a lot of maps and they don't always agree with each other. So, and, and, and very few people are doing straight up Mahasi practice. So yeah. it's like, we, you know, it's like baking a cake. If you bake a cake exactly the way they tell you to, you're probably going to get that cake but we're throwing in all sorts of extra stuff into this recipe. Um, mm. So we're probably gonna get a different kind of cake. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of that. And I, a lot of people take you know, an, a long period of time, several years off just to kind of settle into a, a different way of being and, and the compassion practice is a huge part of that. Um, your second question is a bigger one. So let me, let, let's hear from other people. <laughs> um, I also think connecting with the compassion side of the emotions, even if you're not doing formal um, meta practice or, you know, mudita or karuna or whatever you're doing, um, or equanimity practices, formal Brahma Viharas, remembering that in, in all of these things, the anger, the frustration, the sadness are all rooted in a desire to be happy and not suffer. And so if you can, if you can look at the emotions through that filter and recognize that aspect, then it really heart and body connects them and it really integrates them into your field. And it's a side of them that everybody can much more easily embrace because it feels very good to remember that. And we don't always remember that easily. We don't remember that the anger is our wish, you know, for things, you know, we're angry about something because something went wrong or whatever. We don't think something's going right or, you know, and so we, we wish it to be well and that well wishing part is the compassionate part of the dark emotions. And so I even write about this in my book, you know, somewhere anyway, everybody seems to ignore that section, but I thought it was anyway <laughs> important. But anyway, so um, where if you, if you just, if you, um, but just remembering that and, and identifying each, you know, sadness, we're sad because something, you know, bad went wrong and we wish that something good went right. It's that wish that something good went right that is the compassion, you know, the wish for us and our all beings not to suffer. Um, the recognition of the suffering and the reaction in the face of it. And so even if you're not doing the practices formally, reframing the emotions in that context um, really helps people ground into the space. And it's the space that ends up being the thing. So it's this volume, this body, in this place, in some way where you settle in and it broadens out and sort of that's what helps you with that third genre, you know, third Vipassana genre to fourth Vipassana trans. Uh, genre transition out of the dark night to equanimity. Um, so anyway, so I, I also think, yeah, very helpful. Yeah, I would, I would add to that. And, and I think that a lot of people that get into difficulties um, and people that don't also, I mean, I think it's always a question of really examining our intention. And so when I see people who have done like you know, 12 retreats in one year or something. And I'm like, wow, you're really after something. Like, what is it? What is it that you're after? Um, and so I think that like coming out of this, this difficult process is actually starting to see that some of, some of, maybe not all, but some of the intentions and motivations that are actually driving the practice, especially the zealous practice, um, may not be coming from the most compassionate and wholesome intentions. And a lot of time people don't even know consciously that, you know, I, I mean, this goes for me too, like that I was using practice to 
really do an overhaul of my entire personality because it needed to be fixed. You know, it was it was inherently problematic. And that's that's not exactly the best intention. I mean, that is actually a subtle form of violence. So I think a lot of these difficulties are actually kind of, they're actually insights into showing us that the rudder that's actually directing our practices miss, you know, it's in the wrong position. It needs to be repositioned. Um, because if, you know, if you're, if you're heading in the wrong direction, you're going to start to figure that out soon. So I think that Daniel's very right in that. Okay. You want to get into the sniper question? That's a hard one. I think, uh, one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that, that at least the way I hear it is, is one of the sort of ongoing questions and ongoing debates and controversies, and this has been going on for thousands of years amongst various people, um, is sort of the innatist versus constructivist debate. So the innatists say that you discover your true nature, and if you do these, you don't need any theory coming up front. You don't need any like training beforehand. You just sit down, you do these practices, the true, your true nature will open up and like everything's gonna be great after that and you'll be so compassionate and so happy. And um, that's obviously a cartoon of the innatist view, but you get the idea. And then the constructivist view is like, you get good at what you practice and you better like have your list of qualities that you wanna practice and practice those. And like, whatever you think that you are after, whatever your definition of enlightenment is, whether it's being compassionate or being free of negative emotions or whatever, that's what you're going to get because that's what you're in some ways constructing. Um, so those are kind of two extremes. And, you know, I think obviously the answer is somewhere in the middle. That's always the sort of cop out Buddhist <laughs> middle way answer um, in that, you know, is, is mindfulness innately compassionate? Like if you just sit down and follow your breath, will you become compassionate? Well, I have data to suggest that, yeah, actually some people seem to be, have like the students that I, that I train at Brown, we had them follow their breath for a semester as part of class and they became more empathic and had more concern for other people. Um, and they weren't learning any, any loving kindness practice or any ethics in, in class. So I think, you know, when you start to notice your own suffering and, and you're like, wow, this is probably happening to everyone, it might transfer. Um, but I also think that that's like not completely true in that if we, we are teaching basically just, if you just teach attention training and you're training attention, you can train attention to do anything. And there are programs that are training soldiers mm -hmm. and you know, I will sort of just bring to mind that using contemplative practice to train soldiers is not the first time this has happened. This has happened across history. Um, and so, like, can we use Buddhism even and contemplative practice to train better killers? Like, of course, it's been done before. So Similar. I don't, yeah, and kamikazes. I don't yep. think that that we should assume that doing these practices is suddenly going to make everyone nice to each other. I mean, Buddhists aren't even nice to each other. <laughs> like look at the history of Tibet. Like it's yeah. not, not a nice picture. So <laughs> I, I think it's, 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 it's both. Great. Thank you. So I want to just, is it all right if I just talk about the article as a sort of way to contextualize sort of the comments? Sure. So we have, 
this guy who apparently had, you know, met this Thai guy and started doing Thai Buddhist meditation, if I understand the article correctly, and the sub-article that was linked to in it. And this is a guy who had some mental health issues and had some traumatic stress stuff related to 9-11 and perhaps some other things. So it was, you know, he had some, some issues he was dealing with. And then the question is, how do you think about this guy who ended up killing people? Um, he had had, you know, some violent history before, it sounds like, if I understand things correctly. And so how did the meditation relate to that is sort of the question. Was it that with the meditation, he got into difficult territory, I guess that's the implication, and that made him more likely to kill people? I mean, that's sort of the question we're asking, right? Is that sort of the implication of the article? Or yeah, is. is it that he would have, you know, did he cross the arising and pay, passing away and hit the dark night and reobservation, and that exacerbated his underlying meta, you know, mental condition? Mm -hmm. He, you know, ended up uh, reacting poorly to that confluence of unfortunate factors? Or is it that he would have um, done that anyway, and it's totally unrelated to his meditation, he just happened to do meditation, and the two are totally unrelated? Or is it that he would have killed many people way sooner or done something way worse, um, you know, much earlier had he not had Buddhist practice, and that helped blunt some of what he would have done had he not had that meditation practice to help ground him down? Because it sounds like he was recognizing his own internal difficulties. It sounds like he had some insight into the fact that he had some things. And it sounds like he, most people go into meditation looking for some healing or some resolution. They're looking for something. People, when people are sick, they will seek. And so he um, very well may have internally recognized that he had something he was trying to deal with. Well, that internal thing he was trying to deal with, that's obviously compassion. So this is a person who has recognizes some degree of their own suffering is trying to figure out what to do about that suffering. Um, so I think that's obvious. And, um, he, you know, and when he went uh, shooting people in his confused mind, he may have had some odd notion that he was doing something good or important. Um, so there's confused compassion. Just because you have compassion doesn't mean it's either intelligent or skillful or moral or ethical. I think, you know, if we look at suicide bombers, these are people who get all very amped up on a quest and a vision of, you know, something that they feel is extremely important to them, obviously, as they blew themselves up for it. You know, that's a pretty high level of uh, dedication and inspiration, I would think, or mental illness or whatever you call it, or a mix of all of those things or delusion or, or anger. But it's, it's a lot of things together, right? I mean, you know, most of these people, if you ask them, I think, you know, I don't know, I haven't interviewed any suicide bombers, they're all dead. Um, but, you know, I would speculate that most of them went into it thinking they were doing something important for their community or their God or their religion or their quest or their tribe or their, you know, government or their nation or their family or their community or their leader or, her, you know, whoever it was. And so, uh, you know, it, but that doesn't mean that their actions were skillful or a good idea um, necessarily. And so I, I think they're two separate questions. And I think that everybody has some degree of compassion. I think we are all suffering to some degree. Having been born humans, there is a lot of difficult stuff that we deal with. Our emotions are difficult. Life, just life is difficult. Bodies can be painful. Uh, social situations hard. The things we see in our lives can be extremely traumatic. And all of us are trying to figure out how to mitigate that, how to feel okay, how to be all right, how to have the world be okay. And so I think that, that yes, I, th I would argue that with on the intrin on sort of the in intrinsic side that uh, compassion is is demonstrated everywhere all day long. Um, it's just the manifestations of it uh, can be extremely skewed 
um, unskillful, um, ungrounded, unhelpful, dangerous, um, violent, terrible, et cetera, and so forth. You know, I think, <laughs> you know, most, most totally crazy, you know, uh, horrible political leaders who started wars or whatever, some aspect of them thought they were doing something important, I think, you know, or something good or something right in their own totally horrible way. You know what I mean? So that's my, that would be my uh, take on it, not to excuse any of the, the manifestations, the behaviors, you know, reprehensible behaviors are reprehensible behaviors, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't some underlying aspect where they were trying to do something they thought was good. Well, I spent a little time reading up on Aaron Alexis in preparation, um, so I would understand a little bit about uh, what happened. And apparently, um, in addition to the fact that he had PTSD and was a heavy drinker, um, he explained, he actually left a note about why he did this. Um, and apparently he was under the impression that he was being attacked by extra low frequency radio waves um, from the government. And he actually called his gun the ELF weapon, ELF meaning ex extremely low frequency. Oh. Um, and that, and he wrote on his, on his gun and the torment. So, and he said that he was basically doing this it was completely arbitrary who he shot, and he was basically in, intending on dying during that. So I don't know. I just see someone who had a very severe mental illness and really fell through the crack, cracks of our healthcare system. Apparently, he was in Rhode Island, which, by the way, happens to be where I live, um, one month before the shooting happened and um, called the police saying that he was hearing voices um, who were threatening to harm him and like how he wasn't hospitalized at that point. I don't know why, what's wrong with the Rhode Island police to not recognize that as someone who needs help. So that's where I see the problem. I don't think meditation has any role in this whatsoever. It's for me, it's a clear case of someone with a mental illness. And I don't think that, you know, the dark night is any role in this and that, not that it couldn't, but not that, there isn't, there aren't difficulties that arise, but in this particular case, I don't think it's, it plays a role at all. Awesome. Well, I think this is um, a good place to end our dialogue on the, on the dark side of meditation. I just want to thank you all for uh, showing up and bringing your great expertise and personal experience to the conversation. That was, um, it was really cool. Yeah. So thank thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference.
After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.